0: Thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the companion articles titled, A Model for Self-Organization of Sensory Motor Function, The Spinal Motosynaptic Loop, and A Model for Self-Organization of Sensory Motor Function, Spinal Interneuronal Integration, with co-authors Dr. Jonas Inander and Dr. Jerry Loeb. Hosting today's podcast is Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so very much. And uh, before we begin the the podcast, let me introduce our participants for today's session. And the senior author, Dr. Jerry Loeb, is Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Neurology at the University of Southern California. Uh, Professor Loeb received his Bachelor and MD from Johns Hopkins University, and trained in in surgery at the University of Arizona. He spent 15 years in the laboratory of neural control at the NIH and 12 years at uh, Queens University in Kingston, Canada, where he was professor of physiology and director of the biomedical engineering unit. He served also as chief scientist for advanced bionic corporation of Silmar in California and from 1994 to 1999, He's a a founding director of Syntouch, Uh, and these industry positions reflect Professor Loeb's uh, long history in the development of neuroprosthesis, including cochlear implants, where he was a pioneer, and injectable neuromuscular uh, stimulators. Dr. Loeb has published over 400 peer-reviewed articles and a book on electromyography, and he holds 74 uh, US patents. Then, uh, we have also on the line Dr. Jonas Enander. Uh, he studied medicine at Lund University or Lund University in Sweden before he took uh, on a doctoral thesis working on the circuitry responsible for voluntary motor control and sensory processing with Professor uh, Jörntel in the laboratory of the neural basis of sensory motor control in the department of experimental medicine at Lund University in Sweden. He received his PhD and then uh, moved on to work in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University Hospital of Linköping in Sweden. And he's now a postdoc with uh, Professor Hakan uh, Olauson at the Center for Social and Effective Neuroscience. And uh, Jonas is also a passionate software developer and has co-founded several companies. And he's been primarily responsible for the simulation analysis in this collaborative project, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about this in more detail. So what we're talking today is is of the most fundamental uh, importance for in neuroscience. And the question is, how does the nervous system develop and establish its extremely complex connectivity and functionality? Now, we're all in awe of the enormous complexity of the brain. Uh, we can have emotions, we can generate uh, movements, we can think, we can remember. Yet most of us don't fully appreciate how daunting it really is to develop this incredible uh, complex structure. And at the core of this complexity is the fact that in the brain it matters how every cell is connected. For example, as you plan to move your middle finger, you activate millions of nerve cells in many different areas of the brain and what finally happens is the product of the connections and the timing of the activity. And in this very simple movement, the behavior of the muscles and the mechanics of the limb will generate sensory feedback that then modifies the movements through reflexes. It also depends on the planning activity. Now, imagine what has to happen if you want to play a Rachmaninoff piano concerto that needs to be coordinated with millisecond precision and without any temporal deviation. But now it gets really amazing if you imagine that we're born with roughly 86 billion nerve cells. And this means that you're born with 10 times more nerve cells than there are humans on the earth. So basically your brain is a, really a super planet that nurtures and coordinates 80, 60, 86 billion cells. And each of these cells must find connections that are useful or they die in the effort. And to do so your brain uh, has only 25,000 genes, which is only 5,000 more genes than the little worm C elegance to make us humans, humans. So, how can 25,000 genes provide the instruction to establish all these connections? And, uh, and in this context, just I want to give you another perspective, because in this uh, study, Professor Lerb and Dr. Enanda developed a simple computational model for the nervous system and in particular the spinal cord. And this simple model has only 16 excitatory and 16 inhibitory interneurons. But they calculated that the possible binary combination of activation are 4,294,967,296 uh, combinations. So now you can imagine how you can want to coordinate 86 billion instead of uh, 32 neurons. Now, of the known, one of the known tricks that the nervous system develops is pruning. And when you are three years old, each of your 86 billion nerve cells makes approximately 50,000 connections to other neurons, and which is approximately three times as many connections than an adult. So during neurodevelopment, your connections are pruned through environmental and behavioral interaction to strengthen connections that you need and get rid of those that you don't need. And this is very relevant for the present discussion because in this study, pruning plays a central role in establishing the spinal motor system. And specifically, we will hear Professor Loeb and Dr. Enanda discuss the role of self-organization of spinal cord circuitry to reflect musculoskeletal mechanics during the spontaneous movement of the developing fetus. And our discussion is based on two back-to-back papers that they published in our favorite journal, the Journal of Neurophysiology, with the overarching theme, a model for self-organization of sensory motor function. Now, Professor Loeb, thank you so much for participating on today's uh, podcast. And um, maybe could you begin by giving the listener an overview of your two papers? And in particular, I love that you stated in one of the emails to me that these two papers are the first steps in a larger project to understand how the nervous system discovers the existence properties and utility of the musculoskeletal system to interact with the world. Professor Loeb, and I will say Jerry from now on, uh, please go ahead, thank you so much. Thank you, Mm -hmm. You Nino, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: So the um, idea behind this paper, these papers uh, is to create the simplest possible system that would self-organize to have an interesting repertoire of behaviors. And so we are trying to recapitulate in our models, the sequences of development that we know occur in pretty much all of the vertebrates as they uh, develop uh, as embryos uh, through the fetal stages and into uh, early infancy when these connections, as you described, are uh, starting to mature. Uh, Many neurons are lost, many connections are lost, and eventually the system arrives at this very sophisticated functions that we associate with the adult. So we have uh, constructed a very simple, somewhat arbitrary uh, musculoskeletal system that has a number of properties similar to what one would expect in uh, a vertebrate organism, including a full set of uh, proprioceptive afferents. And we've started with the assumption that None of this has any plan to organize itself that uh, is, is pre wired. We start with everything wired uh, to each other in a non specific and random way. And then we say, well, suppose we had the simplest form of self organization, which we uh, all believe exists some sort of Hebbian plasticity uh, and some patterns of spontaneous movements, such as those are known to occur in the fetus. We all know that an infant in the womb is constantly making kicking movements. Uh, this is common to all the vertebrates during their early development. And the question is, what is what are those movements accomplishing if those movements are accompanied by some sort of heavy and
0: plastic self-organization? Thank you so much, uh, Jerry. Now. There are many approaches to tackle the fundamental issue of neural development, And, and many studies use cell approaches. And, and I can tell you that we often thought, what if we put just nerve cells uh, from the respiratory network together randomly? Do they form a network that then generate respiration? And I think there's work done in Calgary, you know, by Naweed Syed, who, who, who did this for an, a snail. Now, you use a computational robotic approach and you called your simple model organism, the oropod. So don't get a cute attack. It it only consists of a mouth and a feet and it cannot talk, but it can capture food. And uh, specifically your little oropod has two monoarticular appendages that can be flexed and extended to capture food and to shift body position. Maybe, can you tell us a little bit more about this oropod?
1: So we wanted the oropod To have enough mechanical similarity to a musculoskeletal system that we could compare the emergent circuits that we get from our model to at least some of the circuits that are known to exist in the normal adult animal. So, one obvious requirement for that is to have antagonistic pairs of muscles, uh, muscles that pull a joint in opposite directions. Um, We didn't want the oropod to have such complex mechanical dynamics that it would be fundamentally unstable. Uh, So we picked a rather simple structure, more like what you would expect of an aquatic organism where the load on the organism is mostly a viscous load and the muscles have the kinds of properties where their force depends on their length, which is a known property of all muscles. Um, And then we equip them with a set of sensors that that represent the the velocity and length sensitivity of the spindle primaries, the pure length or position sensitivity of the spindle secondaries, the force sensors, Golgi tendon organ, um, and at the end of the appendages, uh, we uh, put in a very simple contact sensor, a, a cutaneous sensor. Uh, so that's a reasonable representation of the simplest possible mechanics of the limb. We wanted to have two limbs so that we could look at eventually the development of coordination between them. Uh, the limbs are capable of touching each other uh, to capture uh, prey, as, as, as you indicated, or food. Uh, And they're also capable of extending and pushing against a surface, which can be used to displace the body. Uh, Those are the kinds of voluntary functions that we hope will eventually emerge in the later stages of development. These two papers are still looking at just how the sensors get wired to the motor neurons and through the interneuronal system, how the interneurons get wired to each other to produce an, a set of circuits, uh, which we believe are similar, in fact, remarkably similar to the kinds of connectivity that are described in the adult. In the next phases of the research that you alluded to that were actually underway now, uh, we will start putting in a descending cortical spinal system and looking to see how the system can use the interneurons that have emerged from this early development as the substrate for a range of voluntary movements that will be useful
0: for the organism. Interesting. So your oropod is uh, in an evolutionary development. That's fascinating. Now, uh, it's at the stage where it's almost ready to be born. <laughs> cool. Okay. And then work uh, walk on the earth. So this will be fascinating. Now, um, uh, as your uh, oropod undergoes the fetal development, it starts with muscle twitches. And I found this very intriguing. I know, you know, I come from the respiratory system and, and we uh, have these uh, respiratory movements well before we are born. And, and, and if it doesn't work, then, you know, lung development is, is really impaired. And so, so, so what did you really simulate uh, in, in, in this uh, with these muscle twitches and how important were they? for the the development?
1: So there are some very interesting, uh, specialized structures that are present in early fetal development that facilitate the patterning of these twitches, which immediately suggests to us that mother nature put those in for an important reason. And two of the features that turned out to be very important in early development at least in our model system, uh, and reflect features that are known to exist, is first of all, uh, all the motor neurons that go project to a given muscle are linked by gap junctions in this early phase. So that when spontaneous activity occurs in one of them, it propagates to pretty much all of the motor neurons. So they tend to fire synchronously, which guarantees that the spontaneous activity will produce a reasonably coordinated and forceful contraction of a single muscle, rather than just the random twitching of individual motor units. The other absolutely critical factor that we discovered, uh, again, known for a very long time, but largely overlooked and and, and with a function that's not clearly understood, is the fact that throughout the vertebrate kingdom, you have beta motor neurons. The beta motor neurons are motor neurons that innervate the extrafusal muscle fibers like the alpha motor neurons that we usually think of, but they have collaterals that also innervate the interfusal muscle fibers. And these in the adults are persistent, but small percentage of the total fusimotor innervation because in the mammal, we have the development of gamma motor neurons, which actually occurs later in development. But at the earliest stages of development, uh, we, uh, we probably still, we have these beta motor neurons that are capable then of synchronizing when through the gap junctions, not just the extrafusal contractions, but the interfusal contractions. And that means that the spindle afferents are also going to be firing synchronously with the motor neurons, and therefore provide a basis for the Hebbian organization that we discovered,
0: uh, emerged in, and reported in our first paper. Jerry, that leads me, actually, thank you so much to the the next uh, question, really. And uh, to explain some functional aspects of the spinal cord connectivity pattern observed in adults, you explore to what extent circuit formation is based actually on learning, as I just mentioned, rather than reprogramming. And you discussed this beautifully in your discussion section, relationship between nurture and nur- uh, nature and nurture. And maybe could you elaborate on the difference between reprogramming and learning? What is the role specifically of Hebbian learning in your model? And what are the fundamental implications? And why is this so important? In your paper, you state that the meniscal shift in any of the connection, risk the collapse of the entire system. Pretty dramatic. So on the one hand,
1: you in this recurrent system, uh, you, you might think, well, if you don't get all of these connections just right, the system is going to become wildly unstable. And so how do we make sure that we get the connections in the correct place? Well, we have genes, and we know from the very... Uh, beautiful research of the last decade, that the transcriptomes of these various cells are appear in the adult to be quite specialized. And the conclusion that many have drawn is that the genes are specifying exactly which neurons get connected together. Um, that's certainly a possible interpretation. Uh, but it's not necessarily the only one. And we've asked the question, well, perhaps what these genes are doing is setting up the rules for connectivity, not the specifics of the connectivity, but when do cells start to develop? When are they capable of making connections? What classes of cells can become interconnected or not be interconnected? Because we know there are certain patterns that he- that exist universally um, and, and, and appear to be limits on what can connect. For instance, the only primary afferent that connects directly to the motor neurons is the spindle uh, 1A afferents. Um, and so there might be a rule for that, but that might rule might not be so specific as to say that the spindle afferents of this muscle connect to those motor neurons. Um, and in fact, if those rules were so specific, you would have a problem in development and evolution that was pointed out by uh, Baldwin uh, over 120 years ago. Uh, and, And that is the problem of how does the organism evolve through mutations so that the musculoskeletal structure, which is what we think of as developing mutations to develop new capabilities, How would such a mutation survive if the wiring wasn't appropriate for the new body form? Um, And so by thinking about a set of general rules in the genes rather than a set of specific connections, we can now imagine how an organism with a new body form can develop a nervous system that's appropriate for that body form using the rules and the spontaneous movements and these heavy plasticity uh, patterns uh, to self-organize into a viable structure so that this mutation survives and reproduces and we can enable the gradual evolution of species.
0: Very, very fascinating and also great that you bring this historical uh, kind of perspective to this. And I think also what's fascinating is this fundamental concept that you have your transcriptomics you know like that it sets up rules but not the specificity of the connections and uh, which uh, is also interesting you know to what uh, extent are connection preserved from individual to individual you know like if it's all self-governed then you know probably every individual has some sort of little bit of different connectivity paradigms which is kind of also interesting in the con- uh, context of these whole efforts of the connectome, you know, to to what extent, you know, does it represent a a general kind of connectivity pattern uh, that is preserved among all humans or something like this. But, but then of course, the question is, you know, like you're looking at spinal cord, to what extent are different areas connecting? Is this the same rule or not? You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating question, but, but I definitely agree, you know, like also for, the respiratory system, who knows, you know, whether, you know, not every individual establishes its own little connectome based on these, these rules. Very, very fascinating. Now, um, let me go to doc, uh, Dr. Jonas and, uh, uh, you know, I have to say your computational approaches and analysis are most impressive, uh, and, and they're the core of this whole study. So could you explain maybe in simple terms? So I even understand it, uh, how you approach this and 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 what is the distinct advantage of this approach as opposed to studying your development in other ways like cell levels or so so and also what were some of your challenges in developing this model uh,
2: thank yeah. you for having me as well um well i mean there are a lot of ways to answer that question and uh with the specific of, of the computational approach we used uh, one simple aspect that might uh, be a bit uh, different from other uh, papers uh, is that we used a game engine to um, simulate the physics and the reason for that was quite simple because uh, game engines uh, simulate physics really well and they are really fast Uh, and that's good because we uh, needed to iterate quite a lot Um, when we and that brings us to the next i would say aspect of of the computational approach is the neuronal model uh, which actually took like three years to get right so quite a lot of time we put down on that and and uh, we we didn't start from from scratch actually uh, a colleague of mine uh, dr daya rongala had together with uh, professor gentel previously published a model of qnet uh, neuronal behavior so we started with that and we uh, wanted to make it that uh, more efficient because it was too slow And uh, and since we knew that we need to iterate a lot of times, we we wanted to uh, increase the performance. But we also wanted to keep it uh, biologically uh, relevant. So for every time we tried to um, simplify certain mechanics of of the uh, neuronal machinery, um, we also wanted that simplification still encaptured the the thing that we, the important thing below, uh, so to speak um so uh, we um we iterated over and over again uh, and iterated over a lot of details of the neuronal circuitry or mechanics uh, to to get it uh, fast uh, efficient and, uh, and uh, relevant uh, and that took a lot of time mostly
0: <laughs> yeah I can imagine Tell me, so did you have some paradigm like uh, algorithms for machine learning in there, artificial intelligence that the model learned itself to establish the connections or, or, or did you instruct the model, you know, how, how did you instruct your model to, to find the connectivities?
2: Well as, as uh, Jerry mentioned um, uh, everything started random uh, but to go back a bit further we actually in first uh, I think the first idea was to try to use uh, these classical neural networks to see what to do, at what extent that could prove anything with, uh, with back propagation but we quite quickly uh, went over to write our own, our own uh, neuronal or network software um, and within that software uh, we Simulation of neuronal units rather. Uh, we, as previously mentioned, we connected everything to everything with random gains, and um, then we, by by simulating the the calcium covariance rule, we simulated uh, long-term depression or long-term potentiation, um, and that took a lot of uh, effort to get it right. Not necessarily the the fundamental uh, basic. Uh, equation for that. I mean, that's um, Oya's rule, which is a quite simple um, equation to, to have fair out. The problem was mainly to, to get it to stabilize and learn, learn something of value which the system figured out was valuable while still being stable with respect to both synaptic gains, but also activity uh, across long periods of time uh so yeah that meant going back and forth uh, both with respect to the learning rules uh, which we uh, based on the ltp and ltd literature and also with respect to stability of the neuronal circuit on the neurons themselves with respect to, to leak conductances and um, uh, membrane potential uh, uh, shunting uh, so yeah
0: which which actually brings me to the next question first of all Uh, You know, spiking, as you know, plays a critical role in information transfer, but then the integration of information and processing occurs in a graded non-spiking manner. So how did you build your neural model and why did you decide to omit specifically spiking altogether? What were the advantages?
2: Well, spiking is a very complicated process uh, and it's stochastic in its essence. So. And as I said before, we wanted to have an efficient um, uh, model. So we quite quickly decided to to remove the spiking just to to get the, the efficiency. And the reason why we thought we could do that is somewhat that, that spiking is stochastic in its very nature and for the receiver neuron it comes down to to the continuous deviation from the membrane potential up and down depending on what kind of synapses that were activated and it was not necessary to to simulate spikes uh, to to accommodate the learning rules and also if mm. if we we yeah. observe the, the the system on a more on a higher level uh, you can could also uh, imagine that that uh, we modeled groups of neurons with similar um, um tunings uh, and in that sense uh, the continuous nature rather than spiking um, also made a lot of sense
0: interesting yeah especially interesting because if you think about insects uh, they they show that they have these non-spiking interneurons that play a big role specifically in locomotion and and reflex um, control and 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 maybe kind of like your model hinted that this is a great solution to to solve this problem your little oropod now you you had to balance the different currents and i know that you did not explicitly simulate conductances but for example and and you talked about already you needed a leak current to avoid saturation so maybe could you explain your neuron model a a little bit more in detail how how you actually accomplish that
2: um. Y- yes, I will try to. Um, ah, yes. Don't go
0: too de- too detail. Yes.
2: No. Uh, actually, during development, we, we had some con- conductances uh, or simulation of conductances that guided us while we made the simplifications of the model. And also, uh, as I previously said, that the previous work that we based the neural model on uh, had a simulation of, of uh, these conductances. But on the other hand. A lot of the conductances, the specific or local conductances, um, rather have a, a specific mechanic reason for being there, uh, and uh, since we do, do not actually simulate ion channels, individual ion channels, but rather the effect of groups of of um, of these uh, um, components, uh, we uh, could simplify or you know, simplify it away that, that specific currents. Uh, after a lot of trial and error, of course, but interesting. Uh, Mm-hmm. the specifics of the neuronal model um it's um it's a normal model with uh, some quite basic uh, constituents uh we have the uh, synaptic weights that are uh, between zero and one and we have uh, the activity out from neurons between zero and one or at the output the the actual um, membrane potential so to speak can actually have value between minus one and one but mm-hmm. uh below zero uh what is uh below the, the firing threshold, so to speak. Um, so they each neuron could uh, have an, uh, have a, a dynamic activity without, without showing it to the rest of the network and thus making it very non-linear in its, its uh, performance.
0: Interesting. Uh, and the next question is really for Jerry and you, Jonas. Um, are you aware of this work by, by Astrid Prince in the somatogastric ganglion? You know, And what, what they showed is they looked at the metrics uh, of, uh, of, of all those currents and, and connections, etc. And they find basically that to generate a given motor output that looks exactly the same, you have many different solutions, you know. And, and, and so when you compare one oropod with the other oropod, to what extent did you find actually a, a diversity and, and were there like some optimal connectivity patterns that, that were preserved and, 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 you know, like how, did you explore this? this matrix kind of, of, of solutions. So
1: this individual variability is a really important um, property of nervous systems that has to emerge during these development processes and is reinforced then by the different ways that an organism has in, to accomplish what appear to be similar tasks. Um, In in some early work that I'd done on locomotion in cats, we noticed that, that there were variabilities in the detailed recruitments of muscles. There are of course great similarities because the only way you can successfully create locomotion is through a certain sequence of movements and therefore certain muscles are activated. But when the further you looked into the details and especially in some of the smaller muscles, you would see a lot of variability. We went on to show that if you modify the musculoskeletal system in a, in a, in a newborn kitten, you could actually induce changes in the, the system. So the during these early stages of development, this plasticity manifests itself as accommodating the musculoskeletal system, but also reflecting the experience of the organism. So that if you had two identical organisms and they went through slightly different experiences as they developed, which they certainly would given that these twitches are random, Uh, they would develop slightly different but still functional uh, spinal cord uh, interneuronal systems. And we think that this is probably a pattern that's going to now magnify itself. So, So the challenge for us is to make sure that all of the different emergent patterns are functional, They're different from each other, but they're all stable and could be used to perform the set of activities that the adult has to accomplish. They might wind up performing them slightly differently. And and we know that people have different skills, different propensities, um, more or less athletic, more or less fine movement control. Um, All of these are things we consider to be normal, but they're known to be highly heterogeneous. And that also is probably an important feature of survival in the species because Mm -hmm. we don't know what environment we'll be in. We don't know what skills are going to be most useful. And for the collective good of the species, we wanna make sure that we have at least some individuals with more or less capability in a wide
2: range of different skills.
0: Interesting. Uh, Okay. Could you, oh, sorry, Jonas, you want to go ahead?
2: No, I just want to point out a very common variability, which is hard to see whether or not it's good or bad. I mean, most of us are right-handed, but some of us are left-handed. To what extent uh, that is a, uh, um, an effect of, of genetics uh, or learning? It's still an open question, I guess, but it's a, it's a variability that you can quite easily see.
0: Interesting. And, and, and coming back to what you just said, um, so if you have an AuroPod that, you know, trains a lot, you know, like, uh, one movement or something like this, or, or you know, like, can, can you perfect the AuroPod? Can you make one AuroPod better than the other by practice? Does Do your connections change? or?
1: or so we haven't or, tried doing that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of thing that will probably emerge in the, uh, the ongoing work now in which we're starting to look at how the brain connects to the spinal cord and makes use of these circuits. Uh, So far, all of our training has been random twitch patterns. We know that if we change the random twitch patterns, that there are implications for the details of the circuits that emerge. We also know that over a wide range of these random twitch patterns, the circuits are always in a, always developed to a stable form and a form that reflects the broad general connectivity that we know are present in the adults. You know, in, from the last 50 years of neurophysiology, uh, we've given interneurons uh, of the spinal cord various names. We call them, you know, the 1A inhibitory interneuron, the 1B inhibitory interneuron, the Renshaw cell. Um, and the question is, you know, those reflect the patterns of connectivity and, and reflex function that were first used to identify those connections and those interneurons and give them names. But we've also known for a very long time that the connections, those are not the only connections those interneurons make, they're very broad. Uh, reflections of of different afferents and different interneuronal connections. So the circuits are known to be much more complex than the simple textbook examples. And what we're seeing is a similar tendency for circuits that have similar general rules and similar levels of complexity that evolve in each of our different simulations. Uh, in which one simulation looks different from the other in its details, but has enough similarity that you would recognize and
0: expect it to function as a normal. Interesting. you know, uh, along these lines, um, you know we, we have certain ideas what the wrenal cell does, et cetera, and, and, and what the inhibition neurons do. Did you model? actually replicate some of this like did you find a, a differential role for inhibitory versus excited neurons that you expected or or what is the role of inhibitory neurons at all could you get rid of them and and, and still get get reflexes etc so so what did you learn from this uh, or your modeling approach
1: so What did emerge, uh, we did specifically did not put in the connectivity of the Renshaw cell, and it remains to be seen if those are necessary for some levels of function. Uh, We had nonspecific excitatory and inhibitory interneurons that received uh, afferent input from all the different uh, proprioceptive and cutaneous afferents initially randomized and projected to all the motor neurons. Uh, Again, randomized and projected to each other. Uh, so now you have a system with a lot of recurrent circuits, which are in danger of becoming unstable because of feedback. And so right off the bat, to answer your first question, you certainly would need to have a balance of excitatory and inhibitory neurons just to keep the system stable. But of course, that's no guarantee that as it develops with heavy and plasticity, that it won't become unbalanced and unstable. And we were very gratified that uh, as a result of many of the features that we built into, make sure that these neurons had uh, had uh, conductances that were similar to and adjusted themselves in response to synaptic inputs, that these, are, these were important for state, making sure that the neurons behaved in this network in a stable way despite these recurrent connections. So what we found emerged as a result of this Heavy and plasticity in this twitching patterns uh, were interneurons that had the kinds of connectivity that a neurophysiologist would, if having just having made such measurements, say, oh yes, this is a 1B inhibitory interneuron, or <laughs> this is a propriospinal interneuron. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> of course, what we would see uh, is that they made weaker connections to a much larger number of outputs and inputs again in a way that is known to occur Uh, we, we know that these neurons that are given these simple names actually have lots of connectivity which is not described by those names and usually isn't shown in the textbooks and is quite variable from interneuron to interneuron and so the original interpretation of these interneurons which is that they correspond to the simple sorts of servo control that you expect from a robotic machine. You you use inhibitory force feedback to stabilize and you use uh, length feedback again to stabilize position. Uh, These rather simple analogies to to robotic servo servo control don't describe the real connectivity and they don't describe the connectivity that emerged in the Ouropod. Exactly what the function now of those neurons is, uh, if if it's not just this simple servo control, is
0: what we now hope will start to emerge as we use these interneurons. Interesting. So so are you actually like kind of tempted to go back now to to the cat and, and see, you know, to what extent with this new lens of, of a random, you know, like emerging network whether you, you can see these, the same features that you see in the oral pod.
1: Well, in fact, it's already known from the physiology. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and our colleague, Professor Jorantel, just published a paper in which he pointed out, and, he, and he's been doing uh, with his colleagues a lot of recordings from spinal anterior neurons using patch clamp techniques that allow the wealth of, of their input connections to be properly described. Um, and what he finds is that uh, there's more of a continuity, a continuum of patterns of connectivity than there is a uh, discrete classes such as those have been described. You know, this is the classic problem in experimental mm-hmm. neuroscience of lumpers versus splitters. You find, <laughs> I know. <laughs> when you find noisy data, the first thing you hope is that you can put it into classifications and give it simple names. And, but, you know, the the scientists who collected that data know that it's noisy and they're not sure if it's discrete or smooth distributions. But once you give them names, then everybody assumes they must be discrete. And I think we we need to step back from that.
0: Jerry, you know, this this I wholeheartedly uh, support because, I mean, we have the same thing in the respiratory system where we had you know like certain classified interneurons when you look into it there's a gradient and and also you know when you look at different regions there are thoughts about compartments and it's just biases and it's not a a concrete uh, compartment so I think the model again maybe replicates exactly that that feature Jonas I think you wanted to say something and I, I think I interrupted you i no
2: problem i just want to say we we though use use of course uh, these uh, old classes to as jerry pointed out to actually analyze our networks because what we also realized quite rapidly when we started doing these simulations was that the networks are quite complex and it's really hard to um, define what is a good uh, connection what is a good uh, network what does it mean to have function and so these um, uh, lumpers versus splitters uh, discussions and, and classes, uh, I would say to some extent helped us to, to uh, inform when we were going the
0: right way. It's amazing what that little Auropod can teach us. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Tell me, so have you also done uh, kind of like experiment, lesion experiments? Like now you have your 16 excitation neurons. So what happens if you take out, uh, two of them, or three of them, or four of them—you know—is there a threshold when the network uh, breaks down? Is there robustness? Can it relearn? Can it recover? You know, it's all very, very relevant questions. So I think in the next phase,
1: as we add a cortical spinal system and start to reinforce the behavior that emerges, so that we can actually get the RPOD to go from making just these spontaneous twitches to making coordinated movements that move the limb, say to some target location, Um, then we can start asking the question, uh, if you were to damage say the spinal cord or some of these descending projections, um, how much do you lose? And if you maintain plasticity, uh, how much of that can be relearned? And, And this is of course a very important clinical question because we know that there are lots of forms of damage that occur in, uh, around the time of birth that account for things like cerebral palsy or that occur later in life from spinal cord injury or from strokes um, that in some cases get some recovery of function, uh, in others do not. Um, and you know, what the limits of recovery are and what establishes those limits is obviously of great importance clinically
0: absolutely and uh, i think it's great that you have these clinical questions do you do you have other translational implications from your model that that are important for healthcare and so i think that from the healthcare standpoint
1: eventually we're going to have to reconcile these you know one of the themes of the last 30 years or so of neuroscience has been the recognition of plasticity in parts of the nervous system that in the adult were assumed to be fixed. So cortical plasticity, for instance. And and we know that throughout life there is cerebellar plasticity, uh, probably. And and we know that there's a certain level of plasticity within the spinal cord. Um, There is sprouting that occurs after spinal cord injuries that accounts for some of the hyperreflexia that we see in, in patients with various neurological disorders. If all of these systems are to some extent plastic throughout life, then there's a very interesting question with uh, Jonathan Walpaw's uh, trying to address now, which is how does how, how do these systems avoid messing up each other's function? You know, if the cortex expects the spinal cord to behave a certain way to accomplish tasks, and then the spinal cord changes the way it's behaving, then th- what happens to the repertoire of voluntary movements that the cortex thinks it knows how to make. Yeah. Um, and if and, and, and we know that those are not the only systems involved in those loops. Uh, there are brainstem pathways and cerebellar pathways that are probably similarly undergoing these rules. So you know this, how you reach some sort of continuously moving equilibrium that allows us to maintain and improve function throughout life uh, is, is, is a really large question. Um, and it's a question that affects not just pathological nervous systems, but just how
0: we survive in our own normal nervous systems. Absolutely. And, and you know, like along these lines, when you think about your oropod, how do you actually maintain a set point? You know, do you have like homeostatic plasticity in there that, you know, like you're, once you're, you have a functional network uh, pattern, that the oropod starts to maintain it, or if not, what happens then? So one very
1: important question. We, we know that that the amount of plasticity that occurs, perhaps the nature of that plasticity changes during development. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just at the simplest level, we know, for instance, that these gap junctions that facilitate the synchronous activity of the motor neurons are there a certain time and then they disappear and we know that the amounts of plasticity that occurs in the brain of an infant are much higher than in an adult. We know that from uh, Mm. from lesion studies that that occur. So there must be a carefully orchestrated set of rules for how much plasticity, perhaps even what the rules of that plasticity are, uh, how much synapses can increase or decrease, what patterns of activity cause those increases or decreases. You know, when we say heavy in plasticity, uh, we're talking about a large number of parameters that could be varied systematically over the life of the organism, which would govern how quickly things modify or how much they're biased in one direction or the other towards increasing or decreasing synapses. And that might be different for excitatory versus inhibitory, and probably getting that balance right is one of the main functions for all of these genes that are emerging at various stages of development in, in the transcriptome. Uh, and, and as we know, uh, there are lots of developmental disorders that lead to dysfunctional states of spasticity and epilepsy uh, that are probably reflect ways in which these plastic rules, in fact, can become
0: unstable. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, because we, we know it's not only connectivity that plays a role, and we talked about connectivity, connectivity, but but really you have also the intrinsic membrane properties that have to always adjust to, to the connectivity, and it's very, very plastic. And it, it's just amazing how, how the nervous system accomplishes this and how your little oropod uh, uh, accomplishes this. Uh, now... Your oropod is the simplest model, and, and what is now missing? What, what do you think uh, are crucial things? Like you talked about Rancho cell missing, but what else is missing that, that you think needs to be uh, increased uh, in order to, to make it more complete?
1: So the musculoskeletal plant itself, the system of just two monarticular limbs with uh, opposing muscles, uh, obviously, limits our ability to look at things like heteronymous spindle projections, uh, where you have partial synergies, the kinds of things you have in multi-articular systems or that you have when you have multi-articular muscles. Um, so we won't be able to see analogs of that kind of connectivity uh, that we know exist in, in, in normal animals. I think the question for us at this point as we go to further development is, you know, do we want to or do we need to add elements that we know we've left out or do we see what level of function we can get out of the existing system and use the limitations in that to decide on what we can't account for and what we therefore have to add. And, and that's an important philosophical point for this research, that if, if you start off with a model that's too complete, has too many details, then you don't know how to assign credit to <laughs> details yes. in terms of the function. Yes. So you start out with the simplest possible system and you get to something it can't do, Then you add in something that you know you left out, and it now can do that thing. Now you can assign credit. You can say, well, yes, that circuit is required for this function. Um, So we've left out as much as we could, and now we'll see how far we get. And when we get to things it can't do, then we'll say, well, maybe
0: we can solve that problem by adding back something we know we left out. Perfect. You know, I mean this is a perfect explanation why why your computational approach is so powerful, because you know, in in the real system you can only do lesions, you know, it's very difficult to, to say, hey, now let's put some rancho in there. And and uh, and I think that's that's a fascinating uh, situation. And now um, you you are in the industry transfer, etc. So so what are the implications for robotic technology? What what did our, our little oropod teach us? about developing better robots?
1: So one of the things that has bothered me for a long time since I'm in biomedical engineering is that most of the textbook theories for how the nervous system works are based on analogies to machines. Um, And so when you see spindles with feedback onto motor neurons, people go, aha, that's a length servo. And yes. when you see force feedback through inhibitory interneurons and say, oh, that's a force stabilizer, like a governor. So of course, now that we know that the connectivity is much more complex than that, we have to start asking, well, what really is? are the principles of control? Um, you know, and, and we're starting to realize from the manifest weaknesses of robotics that these engineering theories of control aren't all that good. You know, <laughs> we, we, we think of robots as being uh, rather clumsy compared to the graceful movements and the adaptive movements that organisms make, the energy-efficient movements um the ability to handle perturbations you know robots deal badly with those things so rather than having biological systems try to learn from engineering and 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 trying to fit the observations of biology into a model that we know doesn't perform very well mm-hmm. i think it might be worth going back the other way and saying can we design robots like the nervous system, and will they then behave more like the graceful behaviors of animals? W- one of the obvious questions is well, we know that the mechanical plant uh, of, of a robot will have different properties than a, a musculoskeletal system. So, you know, even if you give it the same basic joints you know, if you're gonna operate it with electric motors, the electric motors are not gonna have the same properties as muscles. So you can't just look at the interneuronal sets that you see in an animal and say, well, we'll put in similar sensors and we'll just wire them up to the motors. Because if you believe that the interneurons of the animal adjusted themselves to the mechanics of the animal's musculoskeletal system, then what you have to do is recapitulate the same developmental process for the robot. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to put robots through periods of spontaneous switching and fetal movements and gradual learning, which of course require millions and millions of cycles of movement, much of which could be quite uncoordinated and even damaging. <laughs> yes. And so the solution for that, of course, is to do it in silico. Uh, Rather than having mechanical robots bashing each other around and falling down and breaking things, wearing them out, uh, we can model their mechanics and their sensors and now put them through the equivalent of fetal development until they self-organize nervous systems that might then provide a better basis for robotic control. And, you know, this this spinal circuitry in in a robot would would be what we call middleware. Uh, Between the controller that knows what it wants the robot to accomplish and the physical plant that actually does it, you would have this coordinative structure, which we call the spinal cord in mammalian systems. We would have it be middleware, a pattern of connectivity
0: that's been learned. (laughs) Fascinating. Well, it reminds me a little bit of uh you know, the production of a Steinway grand piano, you know, like the Steinway grand piano has more parts than a Mercedes Benz. And, and when they build this in the plant, you know, what they do is after everything is ready, they put it in a room where they hammer on it, like randomly all the time, you know, like for like days. And and that seems to be critical that the whole components start to work together and, and, and it sounds organic, like, like a Steinway does. So it's kind of like fascinating, <laughs> maybe, you know, this random twitching kind of is, is very important and, and should be developed for robots. So tell me, it's, it, the, the, these two papers really are product of a fascinating collaboration, you know, with Sweden and, and, and California. So how did this collaboration start and how did it evolve and where do you go from here? So about, oh, eight years ago,
1: Henrik Erentel invited me to be the external examiner for one of his doctoral students who was finishing. And um, I came, it was a fascinating uh, area of modeling, uh, mostly involving for cerebellar circuits and how they uh, organize afferent information. I gave a talk, visited the lab, you know, all the usual things one does on such a visit. And um, you know, the, out of these discussions came the idea that in order to understand the nervous system, uh, both Henrik and myself are long-standing experimentalists who spend, you know, you know, hours and hours in the laboratory making measurements of on animals, and we realized that there were limitations to that. In the end, you know, you you have this vast amount of data, and you don't really know what it's doing you make up stories about what you think it might be doing Uh, but uh, you know in order to really understand it we have to convince ourselves that we can build it from scratch from the ground up and so you know i i wrote up a little white paper that described the mechanics of the oropod and said oh well we'll just take the known spinal circuits something that we'd already done in some modeling of, of simplified limbs uh, to show how the spinal circuits could uh, be used as a substrate for learning voluntary movements. And, uh, you know, Henrik uh, thought that was interesting to do, but of course he was very much against the notion of pre-wired inter-neuronal mm-hmm. yes. doing experimentally showing that these classes are probably more figments of our imagination and, and you know, our hopes that the, sim- the system has structure uh, than the actual structure. Uh, so he uh, persuaded uh, me to uh, consider the kinds of uh, self-organization uh, that, uh, that Jonas has now brought to life in these uh, simulations. So, you know, that's, you know, from, from the first, sort of first meeting and exchange of views um, to, you know, these two papers, you know, being out in our further development work going on, um, you know, it's about eight years. <laughs> so the and papers many, trips, are and many delightful trips to uh, to Lund. And, and of course, uh, Henrik's been here to Los Angeles a couple of times.
0: Beautiful. I'm, you know, so basically your, your your collaboration is a result of a, a thesis defense. You know, like I, I, I've been in one of those uh, in Karolinska where you have to be the opponent and you have to think about conceptual questions and entertain your your doctoral student, which I think is very a very, very interesting approach to to thesis defenses and and, uh, and and fascinating. Jonas, you wanted to say something too, correct?
2: Yes, I just want to point out, apart from eight years, I recently uh, sorted out all the emails we've been sending back and forth uh, the last few years and roughly 800 by now <laughs> uh, in, in that form. And uh, I just uh, want to to say how I came into this project because I was doing my PhD at Henrik's and I've been started hearing about this project. And since I've been doing software development uh, most of my uh, life, uh, after my half time, we me and Hendrik sat down and they asked me what I wanted to do next, which project. And I said, well, if uh, it's fine with you, I would like to try to fix this Arpan thing. And it's like, uh, okay, <laughs> I'll set you up with Jerry. <laughs>
0: yeah fascinating cool H- how do you balance your life are you still a neurosurgeon or are you, you're purely research now
2: no no i just was a junior doctor in the neurosurgery department for a few months and then i went back to research so now i'm uh, here in leen shopping uh, setting up some uh, uh, experiments on, on with skin dynamics and i do the oropod uh, uh, on the side actually because it's
0: a <laughs> hobby okay, nowadays cool. So uh, we're coming to the end, and and I think you already mentioned, but but why don't we come back to this? You know, what are the next steps? And and maybe Jonas, you you mentioned this, and then maybe Professor Lope can can discuss the the next steps.
2: Yeah, well, as Jerry has been saying a number of times, uh, we are now trying to uh, incorporate the descending uh, projections. And see what would um, be necessary for them to, to actually make a functional or use the spinal cord as it is, and uh, given what that means, since it's a bit unclear for um, I guess most people, uh, we'll we'll see where we end up uh, if we need to continue have continuous learning or or if we can uh, fix it some other way. Uh, so uh, the current uh, pro- state of the project is, is uh, fixing the descending connections and the discovering function of the spinal cord.
0: Fascinating. So one day your your pod can talk, huh? So... Hopefully.
2: Can <laughs> Jerry, what be the next, the cord next cord step
0: out. for you?
1: Uh, well, the,
0: the most the pod can do is uh, wave its arms
1: around, but uh, <laughs> that uh, actually, you know, so the next stages are to go from random twitches to coordinated movements that, uh, for, that, that reach targets, for instance, to be able to generate full extensions and flexions, to be able to touch the two arms together. Um, and those would be required movements for, that would then enable uh, functional capabilities such as catching food or pushing against the walls to relocate the body. Uh, you know, essentially the beginnings of of learned behaviors uh, that the animal could strategize. So where we'd like to go is to have this thing be entirely uh, self-motivated. And so the plan from the very beginning is to incorporate each of the pieces that we think is necessary for that. So obviously a corticospinal system uh, to learn the coordinated movements, but Uh, probably uh, a basal ganglia and thalamic system uh, to provide the sort of motivation that would cause the animal to emit these behaviors. Rather than just programming them in, we want to have some rudimentary form of 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 self-preservation and need that the animal would organize. And then the hope is that from that, we will start to see what the pod's internal representation is of the body in the world. And you know, this is really the larger question that I think is fascinating. How does an organism, which has, you know, remember, you know, a, a place in the brain sends out signals and it receives signals. It has no way of knowing that there is a body. It has no yeah. way of knowing that the body is in a world, that the world is somehow separate from the body. All of that has to self-organize as a result of patterns of activity going out and coming in. And that's what we hope to eventually account for. Uh, Given how far we are behind already on figuring out the lowest level system, the spinal cord, (laughs) which I figured would take a year or two and has now taken about seven or eight. um, The hope is we'll uh, get to these functions before I retire or die.
0: (laughs) Ah, Jerry, never. No, but uh, it's fascinating. I mean, like basically thinking about self-awareness. I mean, that's it's really philosophical. It becomes philosophical. Very fascinating. Now, you're you're. Well, I think uh, we
1: need to keep it from being philosophical
0: because in the <laughs> end, <it's> physiology. <laughs> I I agree. I have this discussion a lot with my brother. You know, like who is doing yoga. You know, like what is consciousness, and and and. You know, anyway, it's, it's fascinating. But, you know, like you live in L.A., so I'm surprised your Oropod doesn't have a nice face yet. So I think you have to work <laughs> on that. But uh, what, what are the, the, the important take-home messages you want the, the listeners to remember? Maybe uh, we start again with Jonas and then Jerry.
2: Oh, that's a really hard question, actually. Uh, I, I would say that the most important question is, is uh, to or take home message I would say is, is to uh that there within randomness and or initial randomness and complexity there can be a function even though it's not necessarily uh, self-evident initially and and just because you can do nice boxes around things doesn't mean necessarily that the fun- function in the end is the boxes mm-hmm. um, you need to go back to the to, to actual look at the, the, the original data and, and try to see go back and reiterate and, and question yourself.
0: Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yes, yes, yes. Jerry. Uh, it's really much the same that, you know,
1: the stories that we tell ourselves to understand our data and to provide some structure are always, you know, intermediate steps in understanding. And once they become, rules and once they become you know things in textbooks that we expect our students to memorize and regurgitate um, then they become straitjackets to our thinking Uh, and so what we're essentially doing in this project is deconstructing you know not just the nervous system but large parts of the literature which have come to be interpreted one way and you know, it, it turns out uh, probably need to be interpreted in different ways, and the way we're interpreting it is also going to have flaws, and someone else is going to come along and point those out. And so we have to make sure that, you know, for systems as complete as complex as the nervous system, which you know we may never fully understand, uh, we have to constantly question what we think we understand because what we think we understand may be getting in the way of real understanding at the next level. And there's always a next level.
0: Yes, Jerry. No, no, no. I think it, you're, you're hitting the most important thing for a scientist. It's not just like to create hypotheses, but loosen up from, from dogmas and, and and change your perspective and, and be flexible and keep an open eye to, to something that you have overlooked because you had preconceived ideas. So I think that's a very important message. And and I, I love your Oropod. I would love to ask your Oropod for the, the ideas that, that this Oropod has, but I think Oropod has to wait for another 10 years before Jerry comes up with a talking Ouropod. So I hope you, you keep publishing in the Journal of Neurophysiology. I loved your two papers. They were very inspiring, and um, and I can see that it's just the beginning. So Jonas and Jerry, thank you so much uh, for this very, very cool uh, um, discussion and and very inspiring. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.